Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Andrew Slotnick. And I'm Devna Shukla. Devna, I haven't seen you in a while. I know. I don't recognize you or where we are anymore. I know. We're, we are recording clinical full professor of management, Sonia Marciano, here on a nice summer day in New York City. We were really excited to have her on the show. Definitely. It was really interesting to hear about how she uses frameworks in her daily life and personally. Also, she has a really great story about her daughter and the sock puppet and how it really gave her this epiphany about how you're allocating your time and resources for an end product. A really great episode coming up for you guys. Special thanks to Frank Fericchio, who actually AP'd for us on this great episode, and then Daniel Tennyson, who was recording with us on this nice summer day. Should we go ahead and get started? Flip the switch. Let's cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. Today, we are thrilled to have one of Stern's most dynamic professors, Sonia Marciano. She's a clinical full professor of management and organizations. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. I mean, school's out. I thought we were all supposed to be on a beach, but instead we're in the bowels of Stern and UC 100. (laughs) To say the least. I mean, but hey, at least it's raining out and we're happy to be uh, setting this up for all of our listeners next season. Season four of Stern Chat's coming up. That's great. That's amazing. Uh, Professor Marciano has been a big proponent of Stern Chat since we first started. We're really happy to have her on the show. Um, Devina, I'm super excited to learn more about her. Yeah, it's really interesting. Andrew and I have not had the pleasure of having you as a full professor yet ourselves, but we feel like we know you because every professor at Stern always mentions your teachings in class. They'll always say, well, we know that you learned this from Sonia, and like we're going to tell you the other way, and all the kids are like, no, Marciano's always right. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You're going to have to tell me more about that. Oh, definitely. We'll definitely get to that. I'm calling out names on this this Stern Jazz. We got got a roster of folks here. (laughs) But you really taught at basically the world's best business schools, including, you know, Stern, Columbia, Kellogg, Harvard, Northwestern. What makes Stern different from all these other schools? Oh, um, so the students and how smart they are, that stays pretty much the same. The difference, really, I notice it most in interactions with colleagues. I think Stern is, for me, my experience is that it's one of the most collegial. It is the most collegial school I've been at. Um, There's an easiness in asking colleagues if they could give a quick talk in a class or if I do a global study and I know somebody knows much more about China than I know and I ask them if they would come do a a lunch and learn, the answer is always yes. I think that's, for me, the difference. Um, Other differences uh, that you have students who actually get jobs during school. That's important. Proximity to New York, I imagine, has a lot to do with it. It changes a lot of things. And and one of the things it changes is what people are doing in their off time. And that makes it, I think that makes it more important to be uh, like really aware of what's going on because your students are out there doing something while you're teaching a course. 
Absolutely. But before we, we dive a little bit deeper, we typically ask all of our guests to give their 30-second pitch. Mm-hmm. So in 30 seconds, Sonia Marciano, yep. you want to give us your background and how you got to Stern, and then we can go learn a little bit more about you. Okay. Well, I did not take a straight line to Stern at all, and that's why I am very reassuring if you come talk to me and confess you don't know if you actually have a plan to get where you want to go and you're not even sure. I would say in all honesty, I didn't get here by having a plan. Um, I graduated college, very glad to have it behind me. Okay. I didn't love homework. I was good at it, but I didn't think that was, I thought it was a thing you did that was separate from actually like having a life. I went to a bank, that was my first stop out of college, and didn't find it was really engrossing or engaging. And then I began an unbelievable stream of job hopping. I went to uh, fast food restaurants, not as a food preparer, I like to say, but (laughs) I had a white collar job um, working on pricing. I did consulting. I worked at an insurance company. I worked for a treasury services company. I worked for a small boutique consulting firm. And then I finally realized there was a portion of every job I had I really liked, and that was just learning how things worked. And I thought about what I could use that for, and the answer kept being that it would be something in education and I would have to go back and get a PhD. And I wasn't thrilled to do that. Got it. And that was in Chicago, right? I did. I went back to where I went undergrad because I I did really love the University of Chicago. Got it. Got it. And I felt old for going back. I was 27 when I went back to get a PhD. And that is considered a little older. To start a PhD program. Yeah. And I think that's ridiculous, because I'll just say one thing. I think it's ridiculous to teach business school and not have had experience at sign companies. So it, although it was not intended to be so, I, I sat in a lot of different seats and a lot of different jobs and a lot of different businesses and industries, and I am very glad for that. Got it. Do you see how those stepping stones have led you to where you are today? Because I think, like you're saying, a lot of people, we try to make sense of our own life stories. We try to create this, like, pitch that makes sense about, yeah. like, oh, well, of course I went from, like, you know, circus juggling to investment making because it's the same thing. But, it's it's yeah. totally logical, right? <laughs> and it's curated, and here's my resume to prove it. Uh, absolutely. I think there's – I think it's unfortunate. It takes a while to – figure out whether you like a job, like the gap between any job on paper and in theory or in principle and then the doing of the job. And it's unfortunate how you have to collect that information through a very time-consuming series of steps and choices. So I think the thing I did in hindsight that I'm glad about is if I knew something wasn't like it wasn't working, I didn't stay very long. Mm-hmm. So although there were, you know, I especially back, this was like in the 80s where there were these like rules, like you don't leave a job in less than 18 months. But 18 months is a long time to spend on a job that isn't getting you toward something. So I didn't follow that rule. 
Um, I figured out what I liked and didn't like about the job. I figured out what I liked and didn't like about the industry. And in that way, I got actually good at that, mm. like good at understanding what was working and what was not. So don't uh, ever go for the long no. When something is a no, the sooner you get to know, the faster you can move on to something better. I'm going to bring in an investing analogy here, mm. right? It's the same idea. Why yeah. let your losers go for really long? You're just increasing your losses. Absolutely. If you know something's bad, cut the bait early and move on to the next thing. Absolutely. I think it's hard to admit, right? You made a right. mistake mm -hmm. or you, and especially if you turned, you had two offers at the same time and you took one, but uh, the long no is very costly. Absolutely. For sure. What ultimately led you then to Stern's front doors and, you know, teaching at Stern? You were at a number of different universities. I was. Northwestern, our friends up in Boston. Yes. At Harvard. Yeah. Talk a little so bit about that. So I, I really liked the University of Chicago. I could have stayed there. But then there was this obvious feeling like like I went there undergrad, grad. And then if I'm going to stay there and teach, it felt really insular. So I went to Kellogg because we did. I married um, another PhD in the program, and we wanted to stay in Chicago. I really liked Kellogg. It was great. But once I was there going on, I think it was like my sixth or seventh year, I felt like I, I didn't really know what I was missing anywhere else. I was, really, I was really happy there. But I also felt like I didn't know outside of Kellogg what there was. And around the same time I was feeling restless, I, I got a call from HBS. They, they reached out because Michael Porter was looking for a co-instructor. Oh, so, there we go, just yeah. dropping names. Michael Porter, he doesn't mean anything in the field of strategy. <laughs> no, I mean, that, and that's part of the problem. It was like, you know, Michael Porter calls and says, do you want to, like, co-do this course? And at the same time, you're feeling restless. It was, you know, an easy yes. But then it turns out, you know, Harvard was so different than Kellogg. And I really did feel like a fish out of water. And I liked what was better, and I missed what was worse. And I had this feeling of, you know, real, you know, really, really mixed feelings. Understood. What was it like working with Michael Porter? So for our listeners who haven't heard of Michael Porter, he has a framework and strategy called yeah. the Five Forces that you will hear about all throughout your time business school. Probably you might have even heard an undergrad at one point Absolutely. or in your prior job coming to Stern. Um, yeah, so what was it like He's hanging out with good old Mike? No, I mean, uh, almost all the time I would look at him and I'd be like, that's Michael Porter. <laughs> um, and I'm just like sitting in this meeting sixth and seventh forces right here. <laughs> um, and he's a very, very structured thinker. And you can say a little bit, and he immediately gets uh, the drift of where you're going, and he has good pushback. And it was very useful for, I think, um, making the way I approach strategy more, like, tighter and, and more incisive and, yeah, just much value. And, and you know, he's a, he's a tough person to please. And in some ways, you feel like you never got it right. But in that way, I got a lot out of it. I thought really hard about things. I didn't ever talk to him about something half-baked. So that's a good habit. Absolutely. So back to the five forces. 
Is it all that it's cracked up to be? Is it something that you still teach as a cornerstone of your strategy course to MBA ones? Um, Have you thought about it in a different way? Well, one, I I don't like any framework. I like the five forces. Sure. Um, there's a in the Stern Consulting Corps, we, me, and a couple other professors and and some of the students, we put together this. I think it's like sixty pages, but it's a deck of all the frameworks that we could see. So it was like culled from all the frameworks people have had in school. But I told each of them, we did this for two years, just give me two of the frameworks you actually have used in your jobs or two of the Got frameworks it. you actually have used. And so then we put all those frameworks together. Of And the five forces is modally one of the ones people submit as ones they actually use. I think like any framework, if you use it without a real uh, – objective of learning something useful, you can apply it really superficially and learn nothing. Right. So I think of it this way. What is strategy about? Um, you're taking human and financial capital. You want to invest it. I think there are, there are like just really crudely two management mindsets. One that's very conservative. I want to raise the floor. I want the floor on my earnings to be as high as it can as a byproduct of the choices I make. I don't want the ship to take on water, high floor. And then there's a more risk-seeking mindset, which is I want to raise the ceiling. I want the potential to hit the ball out of the park. Got it. And then you can imagine any combination of that way of thinking, like raise the floor and and include some optionality, some some op- chances. So that's, that's the starting point. And then the idea of you know, how good is the industry in general? It factors into raising the floor or raising the ceiling. It's the hand you're dealt. And if you can choose what industry to be in, the industry will float your boat. Like a good guess is 15% of your earnings can be traced to just the industry you choose to join. So I think it's a good framework because it really does touch on all the key dimensions, factors that affect earnings generically in a space. Got it. Wow. Absolutely. We would also love to dial it back to learn sort of more about you and your background in terms of growing up. In, yeah. You know, where did you grow up and where are you from? And So I know I look back and I think I've lived many different places. Some of those very different places are all within the state of New York. But I grew up in Long Island. Um, my father was an engineer. My parents were immigrants, and they didn't have very much money, and the house they could afford was in a community like that wasn't all that nice. Um, but they settled in, and, you know, they didn't feel like moving. And so even though in my house, you know, we had to do a lot of math and a lot of puzzles, like you could never get anything without, like, Answering a word puzzle, um, <laughs> and just a Rubik's cube is the entire. Yeah, house. you'd have to, every decision you made. Like you play with Legos, and my dad would be like, "Why would you do it that way? Why didn't you do it this way?" And it was very, you know, I go to school, and you know, there, there, and I'm, I'm glad for this now. But there were, there were families in really, really tough situations. So even though I was in a family that did well, I really, I had good friends that. You know, they, they they had to make hard choices with what they got to do, what they got what they got to buy at the supermarket and all this kind of stuff. 
I feel like um, that's good. That was good. I, I have an understanding and an empathy for what a range of outcomes there are in this country. Um, in many ways, it's like real life strategy, to be totally frank. When you have yeah. X number of dollars you can spend at the grocery store and you need to maximize that or, yeah. you know, look at competing forces, it really is like growing up in real life strategy. No, I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, I look at my kids and when we, you know, the towns we've lived in, like, you know, well, Med and, and Newton, Massachusetts and Scarsdale. And I think there's no question and in inability to really understand um, what's out, what, what the range is. Um, and then where did, where did I move after Long Island? Well, my, my parents were from India oh, and wow. they... Uh, they kind of missed the lifestyle, and my dad's company gave him a chance to open an office. And it's going to sound crazy because this was a long time ago, but uh, Iran was a really up-and-coming country, oh, yeah. and it was kind of a semi-gold rush. So, and they were built; they were doing a lot of infrastructure projects. And my dad um, went there. He he had expertise in building. You know, he's the structural engineer on Lincoln Center, and he had expertise in hospitals also. Oh, wow. And so there was a lot of projects that his company thought they could get business in. So we went there, and you know this was in the mid '70s. So you know what's about to happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there, this is another good point. It's about not seeing what is, you know, what, what is just not in your interest. And you know, he was trying to build a business, and there was no question there was a lot of serious political unrest brewing. And I'd be like, you know. Um, there's like a lot of armed guards at school, and so what is what's going on? And he was like, you know, it's all good, and they just want to keep everybody safe. Well, anyway, so we we left. I would say a good year past the point where um, things were still good there. So you you definitely had a real experience in Iran yeah. during the revolution, seeing everything that's going on there. Yes. Um, when you came back to the United States. Did you know you wanted to go away to college? Obviously, you spent a lot oh, yeah. of time in Chicago, but not stay within the New York area. You wanted to go somewhere where, so where your parents weren't. It's a little bit old-fashioned, right? So my my parents felt uncomfortable about sending me away because right. I was a girl. Mm -hmm. sure. And they felt my brother had gone to the University of Chicago. Okay, got so it. So they kind of looked at it like if, if you're going to be that, if you'd be far, you should just go where your brother is. Nice. I actually had no idea that you come from an Indian family. And as a like first-generation yeah. Indian woman, it's so cool to, to hear about your experiences and to also know that, you know, you just don't know basically based on, like, married last names or people's backgrounds, oh, where they're absolutely. from, you live in Iran. And yeah. How, I mean, I'm sort of curious to hear more about your upbringing yeah. in Indian family of how, what lessons, I guess, did you learn from your parents that you see yourself, you know, instilling in your kids now? Um, I think, so I don't have... I don't have a conclusion based on this, but I lived in a town in Long Island that was very Italian and Irish. And when and, you know, you get teased a lot like, you know, we clearly looked not Italian and not Irish. Um, and, you know, I get on the bus and there were kids that would go like, oh, oh and totally. I'd, I'd be like, not that kind of Indian, um, that kind of stuff. No, it's real yeah. for sure. And I did it. I didn't like it. But I honestly, I think in some ways it made me not try to win everybody's approval. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? When when it's not going to be easy, you just look at a group of people, and you are know, like, I get good, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to take that personally because it's 
not personal. And and so is a weird segue. That's why, you know, to some extent, I think the, you know, going to the um, other end of the spectrum and having only kindness encase us all for our, our entire lives is is completely unrealistic. And and maybe if we um, go overshoot the mark in college, we lose an opportunity for people to maybe be a little thick-skinned or learn that if there's one thing true in life, you always have to curate who your friends are and who your colleagues are and, and everything. And you're not going to be offered this infinite set of people who love you for you. Absolutely. So true. It's a good segue. So your family life now is, I'm sure, a lot different. For mm. our listeners, your husband is also a professor yes. here at NYU Stern. That's true. He's a finance professor. Yes. Uh, what is the Marciano home like now? Well, um, we we talk a lot about firms. <laughs> sure, <laughs> exactly. What's the right way to break things down to understand what's going on under the hood? Um, I, I, for sure, the way I teach strategy is very, very impacted by being married to a finance professor because when I was in the PhD program, I got an MBA because that was allowed and free if you were a PhD student. And I'm a bargain hunter, and there you I go. got a free degree. <laughs> Two for one from University of Chicago. You take a free degree <laughs> for go. sure. And I took strategy, a course I loved. And when I would be home reading the cases, I thought it was really funny. Uh, my husband, Anthony Marciano, he'd pick up the case and go right to the back. Mm. And just go to look the at the numbers. Such you go right to the exhibits. <laughs> and I just thought that Can was Can I get this like in so Excel, funny. please? <laughs> and he just, and then I, I, you know, he would, I would say, well, you know, the, the case says this. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, the numbers say this. So uh, that was really, it was really good for me. Because um, I, I, you know, would read the case, go to class, and I would say, you know, it's just interesting that the firm has this impression of its objective and, the numbers don't support. What's well, like the typical dinner conversation like at your at your home? I also hope that your kids know how like lucky they are to have two such dynamic, brilliant, you know, masters in their own field at this table for free for dinner. Like every night, it sounds like the best reality yeah. show that's waiting to happen. Although it's probably not. Uh, no, it's funny. Guys. Like sometimes they think we're arguing. <laughs> like we're cause we get very we're we're like no, you know we're we're not quiet about it. I mean we're. You know, we we feel a strongly. Discussion. Yeah, it's a healthy discussion. But um, when our older daughter was younger, she would, especially in the car, when we were talking, she would lean forward and she was like, "You be nice and you be nice." <laughs> like it was. We're like, "This is nice." Um, Thinking things are going off the rails. So, but they, I think they appreciate it. You know what I do appreciate? My kids are tough. I always say, they're the best things that ever ruin your life, right? Because the thing with kids is. Um, you immediately, you immediately appreciate when they're born that something so terrible you could have never imagined is now possible because something could happen to this person. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like you, you almost have, I had this epiphany, like unfettered happiness was no longer possible. It was just always going to be whatever there was. I was happy, but there would be this worry that anything would happen to one of these two people. Um, so there's, so there's that. And then, and then there's like, you just get what you get. You know, we maybe think a lot about how much we have to do with who they turn out to be and 
think I think, well, there's just a lot there to start with. Sure. Mm-hmm. But they both take our, our advice or at least ask for it or and sometimes listen to it. And I think that's one thing I don't have, like when a lot of people say, you know, you can lead a horse to water and you can't make them drink. I think my kids would, they drink if we recommend it. That's good. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Um, there's a lot of anecdotes from your class about you bringing stories from your family mm. and applying them to strategy. Uh, a famous one is the sock puppet the sock analogy. Puppet. Yep. Can you maybe diagram that a little bit and share that story so all of our listeners could also have an idea of what that's about? It, was, it really was an epiphany. It really was like one night where I thought that I wanted to be able to explain uh, in a very structured way how ridiculous her behavior was that day. So my daughter decided, you know, she really wanted to, like, just up her game in school. She wasn't, like, in grammar school. She was kind of, like, saw all homework as optional kind of thing. And I like that. Did, that yeah, that just... Outlook. Um, <laughs> and then when high school started and she sort of felt like the stakes were high and she got really amped up to get good grades. But, but in this way that isn't you know, appealing to me, which is like just grades for the sake of grades or grades for the sake of like being designated at some level at school. You know, it seemed not um, inspirational Mm -hmm. type of motivation to learn. Okay. So it was that, that was, that was a little off-putting. But then it was the uh, just attack everything to get an A without discriminating in any way the importance of one thing versus another. And when she was just went insane over this project for an English class to to make a puppet, um, I realized this is this is exactly uh, analogous to a firm blowing through money to include an attribute in their product that would have no effect on the amount people would be willing to pay for that product. It it would it's that idea of just taking vision. Instead of really taking market reality, just vision, and saying, this is the product I want to buy, I think it's pretty rare that the product you envision is the product Absolutely. people have. Wow. So what's your advice to business school students at Stern and honestly to other schools too? Because your story reminds me about everything at Stern feels like it's the most important thing at that moment, mm. whether it's recruiting or classes or projects or your social life. So how, what is your advice in, ter- in terms of of allocating your resources mm. and your time wisely with that vision. Yeah. Um, so there's like a triangulation process you go through to, you know, spend your time and your money and your all forms of capital wisely. And it's about getting where you know you will feel happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me define happiness for a second, because I think my, my definition of happiness has changed. And then I would say happy is, is kind of the goal in all things. So I, I thought this was corny when I was 20, but I think when you're doing a job, at first it can just be interesting. And then later on it could just be good for you because you're going to like have skills that are rare. But I think to do a job for five years or more, it has to feel like you're doing something worthwhile. So it has to feel like it has a purpose and that, you know, corny, you're making the world a better place in some way. I think 
another thing for happiness is a feeling of power, a feeling that you can negotiate to get things a little more your way when they're really important to you, that you're not just only taking orders. There are jobs, like anything in operations, that I think are very problematic on that front because you're only spoken to when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Like the more operational what you do is, actually if somebody reported to me and they had a job that was in operations, I would, I would have to figure out how to re-engineer the way their job worked. But um, power is important and you can have power when you run a P&L but not very many people run a P&L, and so it's like it's tough. So sure. control over how your time, other people's time, and money is allocated. And then the third thing is you, every single human, is high tail in some set of activities. And it's surprising. It's so hard to discover what you're high tail at. Part of it is because we're very private in America about our grades versus other people's grades. Mm -hmm. We're also very inflammatory about grades. Um, so, you know, how do you discover, like, what's actually pretty easy for you and what is that, what is that actually good for? So we'll call that propensity. So there's purpose, there's power, and there's propensity. And you, you want to be in a node X number of years from now where you wake up and you're like, today I'm doing something I'm good at that I think makes the world a better place. And if I want to like change it up, I have the power to do that. And that's the goal. And so then you got to think about the, the answers to this. This is very personal. It's like at the personal level, like what's the answer? And then you got to work backwards and you got to find people who are kind of living, um, doing the things that sound like where you want to go. I doubt any of them will say their GPA in any program mattered. And sure. so, Amen. so there like, there's no <laughs> way go. I've never, I, you know, unless you want to get into graduate school, like that's where you get to spend that currency, your, your GPA. But beyond that, um, no, um, they'd have to say what was kind of high tail. Um, in terms of their success, what sort of gave them the most boost was was who they interacted with, who they impressed, who, you know, was willing to make a call, like really put themselves on the line for them. And so that's why I just can't say it has to come back to, and not in like a operating kind of evil way, but really looking around and saying some of these people in this room are going to give me an opportunity I wouldn't otherwise get. And I'm going to do, I'm going to be in a position to do, to do that too. So for this really, really, you know, win-win relationship, um, I got to start investing early and now. So I'd say first and foremost, if I was in a full-time business school program, I would just really figure out who I wanted to invest in and who I thought would be willing to invest in me. And we would just really be there for each other over time. Um, and that could be faculty. That could be, you know. Um, and then I'd say, like, make friends. I mean, this is the one thing about Stern that is so unique. What is within a walking distance of this campus? And how many people uh, are in big jobs willing to give you time? Like, we just did a project 
and uh, Danny Meyer came to the presentation. Wow. For students. Yep. Did he give out like free tables at Eleven Madison? I, I mean, don't, how, how I don't know. I haven't followed <laughs> up with them yet. <laughs> Maybe. But, but he I, showed up. Step one, which uh, is incredible. But he showed Shake up. Shake Shack burgers at least. I know. <laughs> you would think. Would hope. Um, <laughs> don't know, but do know that somebody in his position knows the one thing that explains most where he is is having put the right people in the right jobs at the right time. So. Anyway, Absolutely. that's it. That's the thing to do, I think. And then how you do it, who you who you who you latch on to and want and let them latch on to you. That's depends on where you want to go. Sure. Incredible. So we've we've gone through a number of different thoughts that you've shared. The three P's, the power, yeah. propensity, um, purpose, as well as the sock puppet analogy of yeah. spending time and energy on things that matter. Yep. Um and, we, and to the sock puppet, right? The reason it didn't matter is there wasn't a range of grades, right? And you just turned it in on time. There and you go. There was, right? Um, and anyway, and that that's the thing. Some things really have to be sock puppeted. You just can't, you know, this idea, this, like, you know, ethic where you just, like, give everything 100% is it's just such utter nonsense. It just, it, it just, you need to find the time when it matters. Um I was fortunate enough to have your two mini classes during preview and launch, oh. and you talked a lot about the sock, puppet, sock mm. puppet analogy as well as the importance of ROIC when yeah. looking to make investments. Um, are there companies that you've studied that you see that really encompasses all of these ideas really well um, that you focus well, on? Well, I mean, it's funny, right? I have to make fun of even myself of course. for the amount I talk about ROIC. Right. But... Return on um, invested capital. Yeah, return for, on invested capital. MBAs out there. It doesn't have to be that. We do need a quantifiable objective to achieve, you know, to do anything. We we need to be able to uh, kind of judge something relative to a standard that's our threshold. We, I, you know, I do like when I look back, think about uh, having taken some classes, you know, how we put them in quantitative and qualitative buckets. And it's, you, you just can't assert this is a good company. You can say this is a company where employee engagement is at 70%, which is unprecedented in business. However, it's not profitable. So let's figure out how to use that engagement and, and now generate return on capital or return to, to owners. But instead, you know, we bucket things in buckets in business school. I think a lot of times you go, this is, these people love the leaders of the company. And we don't say that, yeah, you could have that and not necessarily have very happy investors. Um, if you, for instance, look at the lists of uh, companies people most want to work for, that is not the who's who of most profitable companies. Mm -hmm. And so I just think we have to connect all the dots. It's it's interesting. It's in direct contrast to one of our other guests on the show, Melissa Schilling, one of your colleagues, mm. who wrote this book, Quirky, about the personality of CEOs mm -hmm. and their leadership style and that playing a major factor in the company regardless of ROIC, a la Elon Musk. Great company. People want to come work for him. He's not making any money. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just interesting to hear those two yeah. points well, of view. I mean, uh, Tesla is... An interesting stock. Right? Yes. So the value is impressive. 
I, you know, personally am not in the business of speculating on stock. Not now. Not saying I wouldn't. But (laughs) if I would, um, well, here's one thing for sure. The 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 wisdom, right? The the leader matters. Right. um, Number one, of course. But ultimately, you have to describe a business that you're building. You could say, look, the incubation period is 10 years, five years, 20 years. I mean, I, right, you, you, you can generate negative profitability during the investment phase, but there has to be a there to there. And the firm ultimately, I hate to use another framework. Sorry, I, I think I just naturally think in frameworks. <laughs> True consultant. Three things, right, for the, where the business will eventually be. You have to have scarcity, a product or service that has few direct competitors, and it has to serve a relatively big market. You have a big market with a a product that's rare in its goodness. That's point one. Uh, Two, you have to be able to saturate that market that you want to serve without your cost going up or your quality going down. So you have to have this really nice stretchability, scalability, in order to have a very, very attractive margin. If you have scarcity and scalability, your margin is nice. And then the trifecta, the magic third ingredient would be what I call scopability, the ability to take your abilities, your capabilities, your assets, and deploy them in new geographies or in adjacent product markets. So if you're scarce, scalable, and scopable, that really does define the ceiling, kind of where this value can go. There is no amount of charisma or quirkiness or anything that can take an idea that is inherently not producing something scarce, where there's no production process that's scalable, or ultimately, and turn that into anything, sorry. Right. Fair. <laughs> Absolute that, fair point. Definitely. Um, so so, you know, and the, to use an analogy used in finance, they say, is it the jockey or the horse? And m- many papers that look at, you know, you know, charismatic leaders and the ideas they're leading and the hat gets tipped in favor of the idea. Absolutely. We want to play a little game with you. Oh, we like right. to call it Stern Chats Lightning Round. Okay. And we are going to say two things. She's okay. taking a big gulp of her coffee right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to give you two options. Yeah. You have to pick one and say why. Okay. And we're going to start rapid fire. So I'm going to go first and give you Walmart or Amazon. Walmart. And why am I picking Walmart? Because you, there's a lot to learn from Walmart. And I think we think of Walmart, at, we, we do this a lot as MBAs, we're sitting there and we mostly are still wearing the hat of being a customer of the firm sure. we're right. talking about. And I would say Walmart is a good example of a firm where you learn so much by not taking the point of view of a customer, but taking the point of view of an investor. Um, and you see a whole new world. Nice. All right, next. Netflix or HBO? HBO, because I would want to learn about more what I would like to know what why I'm interested in is good to great. 
Sure. So taking uh, as the denominator the amount they invest in content and taking as the numerator the amount of consumer surplus their content creates. Not that that's easy to measure, but I think HBO is really noteworthy in its uh, project success. Lots of winners got that. And I'd like to know how they are able to manage a creative process that well. Nice. Sure. We talked a, l- a little bit about this, but Tesla or Subaru? Subaru. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a very, I don't know um, enough to know what Tesla is accumulating in terms of very valuable assets and capabilities. I just am uninformed about Tesla. And I've tried to learn, and I, and I find it hard to learn. Um, much about Tesla that makes me feel like I'm on firm footing. So I like Subaru because they like lay it out for you and it's very clear that they know their wheelhouse. I will say like the week after your Subaru lecture, like the hallways were buzzing with like, oh my God, we learned about Subaru and like everyone couldn't believe it. I remember I took Jeff Carr's marketing class and he was like, why is everyone talking about Subaru? Oh, because you have Sonia. And like we had a whole conversation (laughs) about that because Everyone's instinct is to go to these big, flashy, you know, tech companies or like, you know, the sexy companies um, and not looking at companies that have been around for many, many years doing well in their own field. Well, I would rather cover sexy companies for sure. (laughs) But if I can't know enough to be sure Sure. that what we're so I mean, I I think the point of my course is to set to say here's a lens that you can use to quickly learn something interesting about any company you look at. And if it's really hard to learn anything at all, then unfortunately I can't have it in my course. Sure. All right. One that I think you're a bit passionate about, Buckle Inc. Oh, the Buckle. It's or, funny. Or, or the Gap. Okay. So I'm not actually, I'm not actually passionate about the Buckle. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, but I am, I, I like to point out that there's this uh, – group of students who chose the buckle as their project in my elective course on strategy. Okay. And and one member of that uh, of that team became my TA for, for many years. I adore her, Caitlin O'Shaughnessy. Nice. Anyway, so uh, one, I put it in my slides because very often she's TAing for the course and it's, you know, it's there. Got it. But also when you ask 60 Stern students, like who knows what the buckle is, and maybe two of them will very sheepishly raise their hand. And when you ask, like, what kind of clothes do they sell at the buckle? And then all the New Yorkers, like, get a big kick out of hearing about all the fringe and denim. As a a guy who grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and when you brought that up, like, I was one of the two who raised their hands, like, I know the buckle. I I got my trucker hats (laughs) and my belt buckles from there back in high school. It's so true. But... The, the thing I really like about it is this simple fact. The buckle makes a location decision to uh, create a, a distance between their uh, their apparel store and, and the next closest one. And it's just this most concrete way to say, here's, here's what we can mean about scarcity. Just be closer to a set of customers than their options, and that becomes an attribute that gives you much better returns. So it's it's very concrete. Excellent. Awesome. 
One thing you've also told your, you know, we did a lot of like listening about people who've had you basically as students and they walk away with all these lessons and values and principles that Andrew and I were just dying to hear about. You also tell your students to be your own enterprise. Can you tell us what that means? Well, um, I think some very good ideas can be conceived and designed at the individual or like a very small group level. Um, and I'll give you an example of something I'm working on in a minute. But if, so the power thing I brought up earlier that I think is really, really an important leg in, in feeling like a happy human being. And part of power comes from outside options. Part of it comes from you're in a setting where your value is so acknowledged that you know you don't have to like create an outside option to get the, you know, the power over a set of decisions. You, you are free to design your own outside option and it's called your own firm. It's called an enterprise. You'd actually be willing to start. And you were in business school and you invested in people and they invested in you. So you actually have like the ability to put a team together relatively soon. Um, and that's the thing I think is imperative to do is part of one of the P's, which is like, first you learn a little more about what you think you're good at, what you're interested in, what you think is important. And then, but also if you feel like, if you literally feel like you have this idea and you, you feel like you could do it, that's great. That's, that's, so that's the first thing I mean. The second thing I mean is the story, I think it's going to be a movie about the uh, janitor who worked for Frito-Lay, who came up with the idea for uh, Flaming Hot Cheetos. Oh, interesting. Wow. And he, he uh, had his idea surfaced to senior management, and he became an SVP at Frito-Lay. Wow. Um, but I think being an enterprise unto yourself is possible when you're in an organization that is really meritocratic and really ready to hear good ideas no matter where they come from. So I think if I think it's important to be in a setting like that where you're in a firm where you don't have to have a certain education or status to be heard, um, you can be heard and you can come up with an idea and don't just don't just like off the cuff say what's right or wrong. Like really develop a plan and say I think we should enter this market and here's how. Um, so anyway, over the course of my now very long life, I know many people who have like talked themselves into a position in a company that just happened to be the kind of company that was willing to hear it. Got it. What type of advice would you give to the many students here at Stern in the MBA program who are going after big time consulting job? I would say be careful what you ask for. Your credence good, meaning it takes your friends and your partners and your boss a long time to figure out if you're the real deal. And you don't have that luxury in, you know, when you're choosing who to hire. You don't have this luxury to say like, all right, let me like get to know you over the next couple of years and see if we want to make this job happen. So they look for really quick and dirty so-called signals of what they can observe directly. And your education is a signal and your hobbies are a signal and your jobs are a signal. And the better the brand of the job, you know, the more of a signal it is. So from that standpoint, I think consulting is the ultimate credence good. Right. And I think there's very few firms that have that 
kind of uber branding consulting and those that do, it rubs off on you. The work itself can range dramatically from like incredibly engaging to incredibly, you know, monotonous and not particularly uh, groundbreaking. And so you don't know what you're going to get in that bucket. And I think a lot of people end up very disappointed with what they're doing, but at the same time glad they did it because it's like now they can like check that box. Or know what they like and what they dislike. But, yeah. in, but as I get older, you know, I get sadder and more annoyed at things being done just to check boxes. Because mm-hmm. time is so precious and limited. Time is precious and like I wish the world would like get it together and make it easier for the truth about people that are, you know, to to emerge in more interesting ways than just having to like do a firm just to check a box. Totally. For so, I guess full disclosure, I'm someone who came into school knowing I didn't want to do consulting or mm-hmm. investment banking, mm-hmm. and that was my sort of strategy to figure out what I like to do. Why do you think so many students want to go into consulting? I think because there's a lot of lines on the page on how you get it. Mm -hmm. I think because the path between a business school and a consulting firm, between a business school and a bank, between a business school and, you know, investment banking, I think the lines are relatively on the page. Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds good. It's kind of like this. It's like, oh, there's, they're going to walk me through the process of getting in front of them. And it's a good, and it's a good thing. Even if I don't like it, I can pivot. Totally. But I think it can end up serving as, you know, the, the cost is you postpone what you actually should be doing. I also imagine it's, you feel as though you're immediately working towards a return on your investment mm-hmm. of business school. I September 1st, the first, uh, the first recruiters are coming on board yeah. and you have something to go to. You feel like you're being active in trying to recruit for a job. As somebody who went through the consulting I process, know. at least that's what went through in my I head. Know. For sure. No, I, I, I think that plays a big part of it. I, I'm very unhappy about how expensive education is. Right. You know, business school is expensive. Um, I think the return is there. Uh, I'll just to be, you know, to defend the investment. If Thank you. you. <laughs> we, we, we need that <laughs> it's argument. It's so easy. It's so easy to do this because when I moved to Boston and and it occurred to me that maybe I wasn't this wasn't going to be what I wanted to do for the next 10 years. I was glad I was doing it. Sure. But it occurred to me how expensive that move was. And, you know, you're selling a house and buying a house and just add up those commissions. You're getting rid of furniture and buying furniture. I mean, this is big money. You get to 200K in the blink of an eye. Right. So if it costs 200K to get your MBA and having the degree has armed you with the ability to evaluate a firm better and a job better and to just think in a much more structured way, not taking a job you shouldn't pays for your MBA. Mm. That's a great, that's a great point. To and people don't think about think it about. that way, but an avoided mistake, two years in the wrong firm, these, this is easy money to make up. Uh, that said, it would be nice if the universe would start figuring out how to give a great education for not 250k for an undergraduate degree um this is i think basically become tragic how (laughs) expensive these programs are amen to that for sure Mm -hmm. 
So, Professor Marciano, what's next for you? I feel like you do so much, obviously, at Stern and around the world. Um, you have so many things that you're passionate about. What's sort of next for you? I know. It's funny. I could do what I do. I'm not bored at all. So it's good that something about the way my brain works doesn't find teaching the same course <laughs> over and over again tedious. It's easy for me to change cases out. And that's almost enough for me to have it feel really new each time. Every now and then, somebody will say, you know, would you like to join me and do this? Or do you think you'd like to come here for a while? And I think there, I could foresee the potential of saying yes to one of those things. I've, I've been pretty tempted by, by some things that have been proposed. Um, I'm also t- starting a company. It's something near and dear to my heart. Nice. Um, I think it, it's a grading platform which wow. I think the world really needs. Oh, yeah. Being your own entrepreneur. Yeah. Be your own thing, right? And and you got to always, like, invent out of your, you know, your life experiences is just, you just those, that's where you fish for your idea. Um, you don't look outward and say, uh, you know, what you wish was true. You look inward and say, what do I know? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what, you know, what, what do I know soup to nuts? And I know... Uh, teaching courses, um, how it works, and like the part that's the sausage and the part that's the filet mignon. And the part that's the sausage, I think, is grading. I think when you have three sections that add up to like, you know, 180 students, you're not, you can't read every, you either give very little work or you give a lot of work and you're just kind of gleaning whether it looks like it's in this bucket, that bucket, or this bucket. Mm-hmm. And I also believe students really don't read the answer keys very often. I think they get a great, they get it back, they go, I did fine, or like I did lousy, but whatever it is, it's like, you don't really like think what's the gap between my answer and the answer key. Got it. So I'm working with uh, a really talented group of people, and we have a platform that kind of gets people to grade each other. That's awesome. There's redundancy. You figure out if you're a good grader, if you're a good evaluator. Oh, wow. Um, Is this meant uh, for higher education, secondary education? Yeah, I think it's meant for, I think it's ideal for business school, where actually you're trying to become a manager and you're trying to develop an ability to assess other people's work and give constructive feedback. Um, people who lead that give constructive feedback, like you actually make people better because they worked with you. You become like that becomes known very quickly around the firm. Then the better people want to come work for you. Then you like you succeed. So the ability to evaluate people in a meaningful way is critical. Um, so it's meant for, I think of it as like ideally business school, executive MBA programs. I think college students could potentially really benefit from this. Look, my daughter went to an Ivy League undergrad and sure. she had college students grading college students. And that's that's a mess. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a college student grade a college student, why not have five college students grade a student? You know, right. mm-hmm. everybody grades five exams. You get redundancy. Everybody in the room is pretty smart. You know, just fix it. and And make it cheap. Right. There you go. So, <laughs> um, use T all the money spent on TAs. Get the TAs doing work they actually enjoy. I can't imagine there. Well, I'd like to meet. You tell me. You you know, send this person to me, where they're like grading. I really enjoy grading. It's really good. You're reading 66 identical papers. That's tough. It's ugly. So make it cheap. 
be your own entrepreneur. Sonia Marciano, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Of course. Excellent.